Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to History in Technicolor. Wolf, I have an apology to make. What's the apology, David? The apology is that I introduce every episode. Yes. I mean, and I'd like to formally apologise and hand the introduction to this episode over to you, Wolf. Hello, welcome to a History in Technicolor. I am Wolf and this is David. David, whenever yes. I introduce it, I allow you to say Wolf. Well, I was... <laughs> Went mad with power and felt compelled to speak on behalf of both of us. Mad with power. Put me back in my place, David. So, what are we doing today? Uh, David, you are doing The Last Emperor. Excellent. Thank you for your kind introduction, Wolf. Uh, I'm going to do The Last Emperor, and I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to ask me, why am I doing that? I'm doing it for a few reasons. First of all, I'm doing it because of an image. The image I have in my head is of a tiny boy dressed up to the nines, pushing against a yellow sheet, which has stayed in this image, has stayed in my mind as the last emperor and what it was all about, so the vibrant colours and this kind of mystic sense. Secondly, because it's good to step outside, a little bit outside what we know. We've been doing a lot of English history, a lot of European history. Well, you know, let's, let's go to another country, so I thought that'd be good. Because it felt too early to do our Alamo double bill, which we had planned on the Facebook side. And so I panicked a little bit, honestly. Honestly, I panicked. Um, then I saw how long it was. And I wondered maybe the reason I chose this movie was because I hate myself. And me. <laughs> and you. Just a little bit. Um, it's two hours, 43 minutes long. Although I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
This, there's a longer version, isn't there's there? There's a longer version at three, three hours, three hours thirty nine minutes. Isn't this film almost exactly the same length though as *The Bridge Too Far*? Yes. Isn't that two thirty yeah. something? We should rename both films an hour too far, shouldn't we? Yep. What a great gag that was. It, I'm still <clears throat> laughing. Yeah, excellent. So, uh, *The Last Emperor* uh, won nine Oscars, including the big ones: Best Picture, Best Director. Um, so. You know, absolutely loved loved at the time. I've forgotten when it was produced. Was it 87? I think it was 87. 87. Um, it was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, who I thought was Silvio Berlusconi. In many ways, they are the same person. No, come on. One's a media magnate and one's a media. Hey, are they the same person? I, all I'm saying is they both have a reputation, should I say. <laughs> they have a reputation. So Bertolucci, uh, was, I've loved doing this programme with you, Wolf, because I get to read about stuff I've never read about else. So The Conformist in 1970, The Last Tango in Paris 1972, apparently very controversial accusation from the actress uh, Maria Schneider that she was effectively raped on screen, but she felt like that. Bertolucci's a bit of a scumbag. Bertolucci's a bit I of think, a scumbag. I think we have to be honest. Okay. His, if you just, as soon as you search him up, there's just endless right. articles about the insensitive comments he makes. He does a bit of a Roman Polanski where right. he likes to take any opportunity to step out of the woodwork. And for, for example, I'm pretty sure Bertolucci said recently, considering everything that's yeah. happening, he said Ridley Scott was wrong to take Kevin Spacey out of right. all the money in the world due to his abuse scandal. Right. And as such, Bertolucci welcomes and actively wants to work with Kevin Spacey mm. at the next possible opportunity. Right. And that really just feels so like a person kind of, who is... Um, he likes re- pouring oil on the fire rather than... Yeah, and he yeah. really will do anything to kind of oppose stuff like the Me Too movement, yeah. etc. And regardless of his views, he wants to do it in the public eye right. because he's scandalous. So there we go. So we've, we've got an idea of Bertolucci, where he comes from. And he's also very politically very left-wing, apparently, 1900, which he did in 1976. Which actually sounds fascinating. Right. It did sound quite interesting, actually. So, OK, so that, that's some of the background about him. It, the film is based on a man called Puyi. Puyi is... Who's Puyi? He's the last emperor. Yeah, I'm just checking you've basically done your research, OK? Um, Puyi is the last emperor. It's based on his own autobiography... Uh, which appears to have been reasonably open, actually, from what I can see. I haven't read it, but I've seen quotes, etc. And a book also written by his Scottish tutor, Reginald Johnson. The film tells the story of... What does it tell the story of? The Last Emperor. The Last Emperor, fantastic. The clue is in the movie. The Last Emperor of China. So it goes through, you know, obviously a fascinating period of China's history, all the way through from his birth in 1908... Through the creation of Republican China in 1912, through the war and all the, the civil wars, even through the Cultural Revolution in 1967. So it's a fascinating period in Chinese history and you get a kind of view on it. So it's about the last emperor. What's it really about? In the way, Wolf, that Jaws is not about a shark, what is it about? So... On the spur of the moment, I would say, and I'm not 100% certain on this, that it's really about the loss of culture and identity of a civilization, uh, and specifically their figurehead, 
um, potentially how that is affected by and maybe even destroyed by the West. Interesting. I would be, that's a very interesting discussion because I, I kind of rather doubt Bertolucci would make a film like that, but I could be wrong. But maybe he would. Maybe he would, it's, given his It's clearly about the struggles of yeah. the individual who happens yeah. to have been the emperor and how he, he struggles to deal with his role and his deteriorating yeah. importance. And later on in the movie, he, he does lots of little acts to make himself more important. But isn't is there something about acceptance along the along the way? And there and there is. So it's it's his individual journey. Yeah. But you open the movie in the Forbidden City and you end the movie with tourists yes. entering the Forbidden City. Essentially, uh, it's it's a haunting, terrible scene. Yeah. It, you feel so. Um, it's weird it sounds. It almost feels like. The place has been violated by the I presence of all of these people. How interesting! There. I didn't. Did you not? I didn't feel like that. Did it not shock? We're going you? to the end. We're going uh, to. Oh, I just want to say because this that is the opening and the end of the movie. And, yeah, and that's a nice little brandy. Did it not shocking? Because it covers the time period as well. Yeah. So you go from 1908 when it's a locked off yeah. city and no one can go in or out yeah. really, and it ends with the tour guides beeping their horns, waving their yeah. flags, leading crowds and crowds of people. It feels he- very nostalgic. But it also feels, in the way that he acts in that final scene, it also feels as though it's about acceptance of his own personal journey through life and to some sort of peace. So for me, the film is about acceptance of your place in the universe. I doubt Bertolucci thought it was about that either. So either of us could be right. And obviously because he has communist leanings, it is interesting that he's making a film where they transition into a communist rule. Indeed. Uh, how critical is he really of their system? Very interesting um, point, yeah. That is worth considering. I just think, as we move through it, um, the influence of the West um, through Peter O'Toole's character, so England and yeah. Scotland, and America through the like um, 1920s, 30s, Great Gatsby-style parties that are going on, um, that really, by this point, the loss of identity and the loss of... Uh, for the country, um, has been so dramatic and it's hard not to see the influence of these other countries coming and getting involved. Okay, so we've got two different two different views and maybe it's about both things. Um, one of the films, thing the film did for me was reaffirm my personal belief that the answer to a happy life is what, Wolf? Um, In two words. You've got two words. Answer to a happy life. Crickets? Possibly. Low, that's only one word, by the way. Low expectations. Oh, low expectations. Okay. The answer to a happy life is I thought there was something that happened in the movie that was like your... Well, this key. is the point. That he, he has, in the end, the movie takes us all the way through um, his life and his search for some meaning and some control. So you think he's happy when he has nothing? In the end, he's happiest when he has nothing and he is a gardener, which is where he ends. So for me, that was something the... um, I also expected to be remorselessly bored with the movie. You know, when I saw the length, I thought, this is a nightmare. Um, And it seemed obvious to me that it was going to be about form over substance. It was going to be about the colours, the sumptuous sets, the environment, um, rather than real substance about a character and characters. So I was maybe a little bit um, jaundiced. And I sat down with a sense of heavy, heavy gloom. Heavy gloom. And yet I was not bored. It dragged me in, actually, almost against myself. Having said that, talking about the quality of the movie now, yep. the most amazing thing about the film are the set, the colours, 
the music. It is an orgy of the senses. It is an absolute orgy. And you're talking to a man who, if when I go to St. Peter's in Rome or the Vatican, when I go to St. Mark's in Venice, the, the only thing I want are two things, a sick bag and a bucket of whitewash. I'm not a man for colour, OK? And yet this film was... I thought sumptuous. you were going to say gelato. <laughs> oh, gelato would also be very nice, yeah. But whitewash mainly. So I'm not, I'm not really a man for colour, and yet this is sumptuous, you know. It's amazing colours, incredible sets that actually drew me in despite my basic Presbyterian, even though I'm not Presbyterian, you know, um, whatever, let's not get into religion. Anyway, the st- starts amazingly, you know, this red... It starts with him trying to commit suicide and the blood of his his veins seeping into the water and then you get this red filtered scene with this dowager duchess who this empress who makes him king um so that is amazing and actually what you get to see is this sort of roll of history through his eyes and although and that is interesting and drags you in the film has its problems sorry say you want I just to want to ask you a question sorry we- did I give you permission to talk <laughs> Uh, I'm in charge of this episode, okay, David. We established right. this Sorry. when I did the introduction. We did. You're so right. I, even if you just think about this and you come back to me on this later, did you learn anything significant about the history of this some 60-year time period from this film? Yes, I did. And let's talk about that in historical accuracy. Okay. But yes, I did. Absolutely. You genuinely did? I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the film has its problems. Uh, bec- mainly for me doesn't really have a likeable character in it. Um, it has some characters you feel sympathetic for. You feel sympathetic for uh, Wan Zhu, the consort, a little bit. And you feel sympathetic, I think, for Wan Ron, the, his wife, the empress. You don't feel... I didn't personally feel sympathetic for him. He's a rather empty, shallow young man, self-absorbed, cruel to everybody around him. I mean, it would have been amazing had he been anything up else, given his upbringing, yeah. alone in the Forbidden City, without really any effective control or power outside that small enclosed world, which it describes amazingly. Nonetheless, it's difficult to feel much sympathy for him because he is such a cruel character. Is, is it somewhat frustrating that Peter O'Toole spends so much time with him and yet he's still this selfish man? Yes, and how could you spend time lives. with Peter O'Toole and end up being selfish? Yeah? He, he seems to almost get worse with yes. the more tutoring that he has. He does, yeah, it's true. And yet, as you say, Roger Johnson is painted as a um, you know warm, uh, humanist-type character with a wide range of education, and yet he's utterly self-absorbed. But again, you know, he didn't have much chance, did he? There he was on his own with all these sycophants and eunuchs around him to do his every command and bidding and kept in this, trapped in this and tiny he, world. He doesn't really begin to appreciate his place in the world until it is forced upon him by the communist regime. Indeed, yeah. The emptiness of his life is forever with you through the film and, you know, beautifully described, if that's the objective of the film you really feel that but it is not a film that engages you emotionally in the way that say mm, the full monty does no um no not at all um it's definitely visual like the whole way through yeah. and i would perhaps even argue that style does come over substance right perhaps more than than you more than i'm now saying yeah but uh yeah you're 
you're kind of continued to be pulled through this world by the wonderful images and, and the colours. And then obviously they contrast that with the starkness of the the kind of the modern scenes which are taking place in the in the fifties in the yeah. in the prison. So did you enjoy it as a film before we move on to the history bit? Um it's unbelievably long. It really is. I thought I'd done three and a half hours, so when you tell me it's two forty I kind of can't believe what's happened. <laughs> it felt like it went on for forever. Right. That suggests you didn't really enjoy it that much. I never really connected with it. Mm. So I could tell that it was visually impressive. And I could tell that the the history was fascinating. And I didn't know much about it. So uh, the way I talk about the film since then means that it's had an impact. Because I'm excited, I'm engaged, I'm interested. I've wanted to look up and uh, learn more about it. But... Maybe because my attention was drifting, but I don't really feel like I truly learned how China transitioned. I know it's not maybe the purpose of the film, but I don't really understand what happened for them to lose the emperor, for China to transition through these stages, and then to end up in this place where um, the the kind of communist regime has taken over. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Unlike the film we reviewed two weeks ago, A Bridge Too Far, which very clearly sets out to lay all the facts in front of you, this is always a partial view through the eyes of the emperor, isn't it? And therefore, you see these events that he would have understood more. Uh, But maybe that's perfect. He's protected slightly from the information. He has to ask people and then they tell him, oh yes, you actually aren't the emperor. Um, But we didn't really want to tell you. But... Even later on when he's left, I'm still... And maybe I just missed it because I was losing some uh, will to live. live. But uh, I'm slightly confused as to Japan's involvement and somewhat confused by the creation of the new state in Manchuria and then his taking over it. And it's... Japan basically uh, invades and sets up a puppet straight in Manchuria. And it just so happens that you have two dynasties in China. Historically, we have more than two, but two of the dynasties are the the Qing, who are represented by the last emperor, and they've been ruling for several hundred years. But they are actually foreigners, in a sense. They are from Manchuria, they are from the north, whereas the Ming, uh, considered local, are... Anyway, this is not turning to a history lesson. The point is, I absolutely agree with you, it's a very partial view, you see kind of what he sees and what is explained to him, and it's about him rather than the history. Yes. And therefore, in a way, that's a very good approach because, I would argue, because you're really interested. I am the same as you. I was really interested uh, by all these events and wanted to know more. And therefore, it led me to go and find more. And I bought a biography of Mao, Zedong, and all the rest of it because I, I wanted to know more. Isn't that, in a sense, the perfect the perfect thing yes i will accept that but it's it's very partial so it from an entertainment point of view i did think it was relatively entertaining i could understand probably if in, in a cinema perhaps i'd be caught up in it a little bit more um peter O'Toole was really good a lot of the performances were really great um i was definitely intrigued and kind of bought in by it all but they're just little things maybe it's having some knowledge of bertolucci but the amount that he fetish fetishizes things is mm. frustrating even from early on, um, the eroticism of the wet nurse is irritating. Right. There's no need for her to have exposed breasts randomly when she's just delivering dialogue and there's mm. no one around. And I can't help but feel that this 
old, dirty Italian man. Right. That's not an insult. It's yeah. just that's just how I think. He, that's just what I think of it's him. It's just a factual dis- um, description. That, that he's doing these things just to kind of. He, it's his most mainstream film that he's mm. ever made. Right. But I feel that they, these are trends just in his work and his kind of approach yeah. to life, and he slightly over sexualizes things that don't need to be. Right. And well, there is one very famous scene, isn't there, where um, we have this kind of rather Matahari Japanese spy figure. And there is a lesbian scene with her and the Empress, the wife, Puyi's wife, which apparently never happened. In, yeah, in and the fact that, and them with her uh, smoking opium at the time, like in the whole scene, it it's it doesn't really have much historical accuracy. The whole thing, and it doesn't fit into the plot or the mm. story. And in a two-hour forty-three movie or a three-and-a-half-hour yes. movie, if you want to, I mean, the actually, the o- the opiate stuff does. Yes, that fits in, and it fits into her character progression. You know, from her her feeling of the uselessness of her life, but with all this false wealth around her given by the Japanese. But the lesbian bit means nothing. It, no, and giving us these scenes, I know they're not all the time. It's a small amount, but there is generally this like eroticism of all of the women and considering that he in real life was mostly uninterested in women yes. and sexual encounters as well it seems an odd fact yeah it's, and it's not odd is it i mean it, it's perfectly um and you know nakedly obvious that what he is doing is trying to um, titillate the audience yeah that puyi historically appears to have had no interest in women May have been gay, but even that's not clear at all. He just seems to be rather asexual. And yet you have this ménage à trois at the beginning and you have this lesbian sex scene. You know, he literally just put that in yeah. to try and keep, keep, keep people interested. And what's annoying is, is the history is so good yeah. and the story is so fascinating that we're going to be interested anyway. Yeah. He's then made this visually stunning movie, which has already got like us completely captivated. So when he's giving us these scenes, I find it somewhat offensive as... A viewer because I know that it's not required, yeah, and I know that it's being done for reasons that I, I don't agree with, yeah, and I don't think that I that that should be presented, it. yeah, um, and it adds into this greater overall kind of exoticism of of the East, and these scenes are all used to kind of make them fantastical, and right. it's this kind of this desire to take us on this kind of sensual experience that we might not have an idea for, and it. It kind of wants to create this fantasy about this place uh, so that Western audiences can lose themselves in it as if they were, like, going to an opium den or whatever. Right. So do you think it panders to a Western view of the East, as it were? Yeah, I think so. It, it, when there are scenes that don't have any <clears throat> historical accuracy and don't have any real benefit to the plot in any sense, when they're being added, they're just to kind of further this image, this kind of um, cinematic tourism... Yeah. Um, of this kind of civilization that we can only like dream of yeah. and is so unusual to us, and I find it just slightly things great on me mm. throughout this movie, and I'm really also unsure about Reginald Johnson's role. Yeah, and his character, he's quite reserved, and I feel like his opinions are hidden a little bit, and it's for him to return to England, leave all of the trouble behind, then be very successful at Cambridge, or is it Oxford? I can't remember. And then, and then write this book, Twilight in the Forbidden yeah. City. And then, I don't know, he just benefits a lot from this. Yeah. So I absolutely agree that there is definitely part of this which is 
the East seen through Western eyes. You know, I agree with your comment. And um, I was, I had problem with that coming into the film. Yeah, I'm aware that I'm going to watch a film about the last emperor of China made by an Italian man. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that he that we shouldn't have that kind of ability to make these stories from all around the world, but I would be far more interested if this was made by Chinese filmmakers. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to agree with you because in a, I might say that if if a Western, it's quite an interesting debate actually. So, a Western fil- filmmaker could genuinely present this, do the research, get the actors, get the historical support, and all the rest of it that allowed you to see things through a genuinely um, a Chinese perspective. That would be a double triumph because then that filmmaker could also understand how his audience is going to be made to be interested in it, and that would be a double benefit. In this, I agree that he is to a degree, pandering to Western, the Western lens of what they think the East is about. So I, I agree he doesn't consciously try and break that barrier. No, it's, it's not the worst, but he definitely leans yeah. into like exoticizing everything yeah. and kind of padding this film out with all of this extra like yeah. detail that he wants to put in himself. A lot of it, some of it, isn't historically accurate. Yeah. Bearing in mind we kind of have the autobiography and we it's not that long ago. Yeah. We have all these accounts. He still kind of twists a few things and it seems really ultimately to make China seem unusual yeah. to us in all forms of its government yeah. and rule and all of its traditions and uh, all the people are meant to... And really the only one character who seems sensible, rational, logical is the Englishman. Although I don't agree with that, actually. So... The prison governor, for example, is shown as a very humane man. And that's one of the other questions, actually. Then he's punished. Then he's punished. But that's really interesting because this, one of the big questions is, this is officially approved and access given for the first time to the Forbidden City by the Chinese authorities. So the obvious question you ask is, well, how has that affected the way the movie is made? And actually, it isn't bad now, I would have said that the the punches are pulled, and there was a very cross article, American article I read, that's saying, oh, you know. Uh, and there's no doubt that punches are pulled in the way these prisoners are treated. Nonetheless, that man, the prison governor, is treated as a, presented as a humane man, and Pu Yi goes through the prison system and comes out the other end, yes. and he's the last emperor of China. You've got to think many regimes... Tudoring them would have chopped his head off within seconds. Yes. So that's certainly not an act of propaganda. And he, there are other characters in the movies who are presented as sensible, humane, as well as Reginald Johnson. I know, but do you not think that the ruler of the prison essentially still suffers from being in China? Yes, he does. And do you not think that Reginald Johnson sees that things are getting bad and he doesn't like the way that the future's going to look, and then he's like, well, I better go back to... I don't know that it's presented that way. I mean, I do agree with you that there is something very obviously about sort of the lodestone is this Western person. I would argue there are other lodestones, even if they end up being badly treated by the system. Nonetheless, if you evaluate as a person, you think the prison governor, that is a a kind of hero. When you get towards the middle of the movie, and he's moved to Japan and Manchuria, and it's in, what, the 30s, and they're all having these F. Scott Fitzgerald-type events, how do you feel about seeing these characters now kind of on the run, 
wearing American clothes, participating in these American parties. I, felt, I mean, to be honest, that felt fine to me because that is what it was like. Yes. And I think what the film does accurately portray is that cultural imperialism of the West. View it as you wish. In Japan, they were wanting to take on many of the many aspects about Western culture and Western technology in particular. The same was happening in China. I think that was pretty accurately presented. You know, we're talking about the details of the lesbian sex scene, for example, um, and those were clearly wrong. But the basic story is pretty accurate. But do you feel that the, the kind of... Because I want this is interesting yeah. to me. Do you feel that the movie is just portraying it, or do you think the movie is kind of suggesting that the influence of the West leads to more issues in their relationship, leads to opium addiction, leads to yeah. um, these kind of experiences of, of excess, the the drinking, all of this kind of stuff. He becomes more obsessed with obviously buying all these cars and. Yeah. Um, all these possessions of it. I know we had these before when he was the emperor. Yeah. But do you think there is any suggestion that there is a negative influence yes, from absolutely. the West? I think so, absolutely. You get a very strong impression, I think, that this is a mixed-up world. It's bizarre. It doesn't fit. Um, it's a square peg in a round hole, whatever other cliches I can come up with in the next two minutes. you know. And it's definitely a feeling that this alien culture is pushing the whole world into something which it shouldn't be going through. It's not and very do you, well and, and do you, and do you think there's a fondness for the time in the Forbidden City and what came before? Well, yes, I think there is to a degree. And nostalgia. And do you think that, on but, the whole, that this film, from especially from the introduction of um, Reginald Johnson, because he arrives around the time yeah. that the revolution starts to happen, do you think that it is in general, kind of just a study of, like I suggested, this loss of identity and uh, culture being kind of reduced by influences from the communist East and from the West. So American influence Japan is kind of affecting them in one direction, and then the regime is changing, becoming communist in China and taking over. The Maoist regime kind of kicks in, and that's kind of the two forms, pulling them all away from... Their original kind of... Their roots. Yes, I think to a degree it is about that. It's also about other things. So there's a very strong anti-Japanese strand in it, I would have said. The Japanese are forever the baddies in this, aren't they? If there is a baddie, it's the Japanese. And is that logical if Bertolucci is on the left and it is China approved? Yes, absolutely. This is kind of... uh, This is China outwards and indeed... You know, so they show images of the rape of Nanking. Actually, some really brutal original footage, really brutal original footage that suddenly hits you, and you say, "Well, hang on, where where am I now?" Uh, that the Japanese actually tried to cut out when they showed the film in Japan until Bertolucci objected. So, so do you think this is when the movie is starting to push towards a certain amount of propaganda? Yeah, I would suspect absolutely that the Chinese. Whether they said anything or not, nobody ever suggested they did. But they would absolutely have looked at that and said, this is what we want to be saying about that period of history. Because it's really interesting when you use documentary footage in a yeah. in a cinema, yeah. in a movie. They do it in Black Klansman as yeah. well, which is out at the moment. Right. Um, those are always really powerful political 
moments. And, and it really hits you in the movie because you're suddenly taken out of this golden, highly painted world into stark, brutal, black and white. Images. And then when you're shown that, combined with the compassion provided by the prison gov- uh, leader, yeah. you start to suddenly see the prison system in a slightly new light. And the suggestion is perhaps that he was uh, wrong to join up with the Japanese. Yeah. Um, and it gives credence to the general kind of it gives, regime. Yes, I totally agree that um, there is a subtle message in there. But then, you know, how much would you argue with the idea that the Japanese regime in Manchuria was a bad thing? Yes. The only reason I think it's worth talking about is because when we've talked about kind of the viewpoint, we've looked at the viewpoint from the West, but mm. we've acknowledged when you're, when you're questioning the sources of anything, a lot of the sources in this movie are approved by one side of this scenario. So I just think it's... Yeah. Even if we fall on the line, we're not sure it's, like, too strong. Yeah. It is just worth considering. Absolutely. I totally agree that it's... It could not be unaffected by it. And Bertolucci would have written the movie with that in mind. I want to get this movie done. And he would absolutely, I am sure, have said, right, I'm going to try and walk this line. Um... But it could have been worse, is I think, yeah. is all I would say. And he is a little bit negative uh, and critical of quite a lot of the stuff that's mm. happening, of the emperor himself, of both regimes. Mm. Um, so it's not like a... a and again, you see the prison governor you know, go through the Cultural Revolution and he's sort of brought down. OK, so, in terms of historical accuracy, a lot of it is, is well-researched. You know, it follows a sensible and accurate framework... Some of the colour in the film in terms of the eunuchs, what they do, what the world would have been would have been like. The fact they carry their genitalia in boxes, for example, is 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 true. It takes you through the prison regime, knocking off, I suspect, some of the violence or some of the uh, aggression in the process. But it takes you through the, the process. As we said, it doesn't shy away from some horrors, but generally speaking, they're not Chinese horrors, they're Japanese Horrors. Puyi doesn't comes out of it better than he might have done. So yes. there are a couple of quotes I picked up. So he writes, "By the age of eleven, flogging a eunuch was part of my daily regime," and you don't see that. And I wonder why you could have shown uh, that. He, in terms of his relationship with his uh, with the women in his life, um, he writes, "Frankly, I knew nothing about love. In other marriages, husband and wife were equal, but to me, wife and consort." were both slaves and tool of their master. Actually, some of that comes across. But it's, they knock the edge off his brutality again, because I suspect Bertolich says, hmm, OK, he's not a particularly attractive character, I can't make him very attractive, but I'm not going to hit them with the full force, and otherwise I'll lose my order. There's the scene where he's in prison and he makes that other man put the toothpaste powder on his yes. toothbrush. And you can kind of view it a couple of ways. You could look at it as... It's like you have to feel kind of sad for him because he's out of touch with the world and he's lost and... He says, oh, my whole family's gone. And, like, he's been brought up one way. He doesn't know how to live in the new world. Uh, Or it's easy to see him as this kind of entitled, selfish, arrogant character who continues to abuse others around him. Yes, and doesn't really make a genuine effort until right at the end of the film to adapt. Although right at the end of the film, he kind of does adapt. So you see him, as we've said, he becomes a gardener. He's become an observer, but not a not an emotionless observer. 
Um, so you kind of feel as though maybe he has finally crossed that bridge. Yes. And learnt that he is not this entitled person and that he can find something out of life without yeah. it revolving around him. So obviously it gives him this really positive ending. He shares his cricket with yeah. that little boy. Whether he's there or not is weird because he kind of yeah, seems so like a ghost. Afterwards, yeah. um, and he tries to obviously save the prison master. So he's trying to do these good deeds at the end. And like you say, if they've been pulling punches throughout, then it kind of makes it easier to kind of accept that. But I don't connect with him that yeah, much. No, did, indeed, nor, nor do I. Did you think in that scene in the march that there was going to be more violence at the end of that scene? Yes. With him either being I thought physically would, yeah, assaulted yeah, a lot, indeed. or the actual the other the the, the prison guy being yeah. killed. Yeah, I really, I was very again. I think that was one of the places where I think they knocked the edges off what might have happened. Yes. Okay, we should draw it to a close. Anything else you'd like you want to bring up, or should we go to the all important final two questions, which are the scoring and why would I suggest anybody goes to see this movie? I have nothing else to add. Nothing more to add. Nope. Great. So let's do the marking first. Quality as a film. Well, what would you go for? What would you go for? Um, probably six or seven. Six or seven. I think six or seven. Six or seven. I think I'm moving towards six. Okay. I I do think that the, I can understand why it won all the awards yep. for cinematography, uh, score, editing, lighting, etc. All of that technically is is phenomenal. The scenes look brilliant i have a little less faith in the direction and the more we've talked about it the more it actually does feel True. quite influenced you managed to bring out um, the more the we've dodgier. talked about all those little moments yeah. it increasingly feels it's dodgier and dodgier more influenced yes, by i feel more i feel Chinese as i ought rule. to be putting the the um dvd box in a brown paper bag and putting it on the top shelf now my main surprise was it won nine oscars and it was hailed and i could only find really good reviews to start with so i thought and because I, the history was intriguing, I thought it would be fascinating. It really just didn't grab me enough. I liked it with my head, not my heart, as it were. Yeah. Okay, so we go for six? Sure, yes. Yeah, Historical accuracy. I'm going to guess it's a decent rating. Are you going to say maybe an eight? I think you should mark for yourself. But you then do, I'll tell you whether you're on you, the right. You've done more of the research. Okay. <laughs> True. I, okay, I no, was going to go for seven. I, yeah, and I was going to say, thinking about it, because we question some of its motives, if it's being affected by mm. any political leaning, yeah. both from the director who we know to be very political and by a regime that is very political, of which they might align with mm. each other, yeah, you've got maybe, to reduce it a yeah. little bit. But obviously it's all accounted for generally through his autobiography and mm. through... So, the the so. basic framework is right. He's done some messing about and his interpretation is a particular way and he's added in some sex that didn't happen... But, you know, the framework is... Yeah, it's a seven, probably. It's really just his agenda that is yeah, questionable. Indeed. And and that kind of feeds into every little scene, how he adjusts little stuff. Yeah. But most of what happened kind of did happen. Okay, that's fantastic. So why would I recommend anybody to go to see this film? I'd recommend them for the spectacle. The spectacle alone is is wonderful. I'd recommend it for somebody who wants to be led into the subject of 20th century Chinese history. The footage inside the Forbidden City is incredible. It's amazing, yeah. It really is. I would recommend you see it in the best quality version you can see it as well. Yeah. There's Indeed. a high quality That's Blu-ray true. out there. Yeah. My gosh, get yes, it. Yes, that is true. And we can promise you that after three hours, uh, the film does at least give you a bit of closure. So, you know, you get you get something at the end. Thank you very much, Wolf. I enjoyed it. Oh, hang on, we can't go yet. Because we have to have 
my roundup from Woody's roundup. Woody's roundup. He's the Rootness, Tootness, Sheriff in the Wild Wild West. We have to have Woody's roundup. We should call it Woody's roundup from now, even though it wouldn't be Woody if he's not here. Well, <laughs> anyway, we could get we could get Woody <laughs> to come in Woody. and do it, or we could have William the Marshal. I'll we just have, call Tom Hanks. We've got William the Marshal here. We could have oh, yes. Woody's roundup. He's the Rootness, Tootness Night Marshal in the. Anyway, shall we get shall we get on with it? Yes. This is a bridge too far. I was very conscious when we did a bridge too far that we were, at last, hitting that big red nerd button. Maybe that's the wrong word, but you know, if there was ever a film that was for the real enthusiast of military history, this, or maybe The Longest Day, has got to be it. Everything down to the finest detail. And I have to say that as soon as the comments started flowing in, my expectations and prejudices were confirmed. Casual and totally authoritative references to two-para, the use of the words deployment or the fillet's pocket, I immediately felt inadequate. I must say that I was surprised at the lack of a large collective groan. I really thought we'd have a split between the lovers and haters of war films, but unless people just stayed away, we didn't really see that. 60% of you loved it, only 3% hated it, and not that many declared they'd rather stick their heads in a toilet rather than see it at all, which is a good thing for janitors everywhere. A bit more expected was that for nine of you, it's in the top film of all time section. If you love war films, you love them big time, I suspect. Richard made the point that the film's pretty influential. Here we are, one of the Allies' failures, and yet it's really well known, supporting the view that we need to take historical accuracy seriously. Well, that's what I concluded anyway. And while mostly the discussion was about what a cock-up the whole thing was, before we get into that, there was a strand of the discussion from folks such as Nathan, Neil, Richard that said, look, hindsight's a wonderful thing, thinking the Germans were beaten was not a completely daft proposition. But essentially, Alan, Richard, Dave, others had a good old Barney about whether or not the film gave proper coverage of whether it was doomed or not. There were family reminiscences and personal connections, which is one of the wonderful things about doing films on recent history, and it was great to see people's trips as well, including a bit of video conversation in Holland, which was wonderful. But my personal favourite has got to be Paul's gag. We'd been talking about length. The word bloat came up more than was comfortable, I have to say. Paul said he'd read a cut-down version of the book but couldn't really understand the film on the basis of it. Maybe because the book had been abridged too far. How good is that? OK, I hope I was brilliant and abridged too far. I don't know because I've recorded this before I did that. Mm. So, thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for listening. Do come along and join us at Facebook. Tell us what you think. Have a vote. And we'll see you next time. Yes, thank you very much. Perfect. Are you not entertained? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.